Art galleries and museums are just one great big cocktail party for introverts, like me. I'm Christo, and this is Christo.art, a podcast about hanging out at museums and getting high on art. Well, at least looking at it. You know how we're always encouraged by those personal finance gurus to think about and articulate our personal relationship to money? Well, looking at Yan Peiming's art gives us an opportunity to think about and explore our personal relationship to power and authority. But if that's all there was to it, and to him as an artist, that would be okay, but nothing to write home about. He's obviously a really good painter, but is he a really great artist? In part one of this episode, I spent about half an hour just looking at this one painting of his, this huge portrait of Mao, and I really couldn't tell. Here in part two, we're going to find out how and why he really is a great artist, and exactly why this guy's work is worth paying attention to. Because what I learned from it, it actually blew me away. And believe it or not, it's all got to do with Andy Warhol and hypnosis. So are you ready for this? Let's do it. So what is this image of Mao actually saying? We're in a conversation after all, and I'm looking for him to tell me something intelligent and fascinating. Something that'll knock my socks off. Something that'll knock your socks off. Geez, what's the point of looking at art if all it does is just hang there looking pretty or ugly or weird or boring? Well, this portrait of Mao finally opened up and said something absolutely incredible but it took one heck of a long time to drag it out of him. And he didn't actually say it himself. I had to go looking around online for other paintings by this same artist, Yan Pei Ming. And if I hadn't, there's no way I could have understood what he's really up to. And that can often be an issue with museums. Sometimes they have just one piece by an artist, and you'll find that there's no way to understand it without looking at more work by that same artist. In fact, I actually call some museums art cemeteries because they'll have a bunch of paintings by various famous, or at least semi-famous artists, but just one of each, and each of them just kind of hangs there like a headstone, or some minor holy relic that isn't even interesting to look at, let alone capable of performing miracles. Just remember for yourself that when you're in a museum, you can never expect to find a deep, satisfying meaning in a painting or sculpture just by looking at it for two minutes, especially if there's only one piece by that artist, It always takes a serious investment of time and effort to squeeze the truth out of art. In fact, it's like those cop shows where the detectives are interrogating some guy they got sitting in that room with a two-way mirror. And in this case, it took me seven whole months. I, I kid you not, but this really was an exception. I don't ever remember working so hard or for so long to figure out a painting. Of course, I didn't spend every waking minute thinking about this painting, but it was always there in the back of my mind. And that's not because I really like this painting or this artist, or even because I'd already promised to explain more about it in a second episode. I'll only spend extra time on a piece if my intuition tells me that there might be something important to be found in it. And that's one of those things you need to know about intuition. It understands things, and especially art, long before your logical conscious mind does. Still, if you decide to go deep and really search for meaning in a painting... You never really know for sure if you're wasting your time. What I mean is that there may actually be nothing worth finding. 
Sometimes after digging really deep, you'll find that a piece really doesn't have anything significant or meaningful to say. And if I find that the metaphor is confused or garbled, or the message is just terribly simplistic or trite, then for me, it just isn't art. But I like to give images a chance, because if nothing else, I trust my own intuition. And thinking through a piece, good or bad, just strengthens it. I've already invested over half an hour of museum time looking at and contemplating this portrait of Mao, but that by itself didn't say a whole lot to me. Sure, I found plenty of Sturm und Drang in it. And I got the sense that it was a piece of angry art. But that would mean that the painting is more like clickbait than genuine art. And you know how clickbait works. It gives you some wild headline, and when you actually go and read the article, it turns out to be either blatant advertising or no-news news. And in the case of paintings, that no-news news often turns out to be the fact that the artist is just pissed off about something, and is pretty much just venting without offering you any insights that might be worth your time and attention. Looking around online, I found a bunch of interviews with this artist, and they offer plenty of factoids. There was even one where he calls himself a very melancholy guy. But the more important thing is that I found a lot of his other paintings. And I don't think it's possible to judge or understand an artist and his work by looking at reproductions, whether that's online or in books and magazines. But you can still see that he's a pretty good draftsman, and that most of his stuff is pretty large, just like this portrait. You can also see that he does a lot of these up-close portraits, and just about all of them are done in the same characteristic style of huge, rough brushstrokes. So that tells us that A, the guy can draw, and B, he's got a very recognizable technique. But you can also see his range of subject matter. You get a feel for what interests him, and that's where things get a lot more interesting for us, because he's got some very consistent themes running through his work. And number one among his subjects are what I'd call patriarchal icons. He's painted many, many portraits of Mao, and all of them seem to come right out of those huge propaganda posters from China's Cultural Revolution. But then he's also painted a bunch of different popes, including John Paul II and the current one, Francis. He's also copied the famous papal portraits done by Titian and Velazquez, all done in his own recognizable style. And that style has such an angry feel to it, I'd have to say he's got more in common with Francis Bacon than any Renaissance master. And if you're not familiar with Francis Bacon, you just have to know that he too copied those same papal portraits, and Bacon's style turned them into something pretty grotesque. But that's understandable since he's another guy whose paintings are mostly angry art. But why is a Chinese artist painting popes? Well, it seems a little odd. But when you think about it, you realize that popes have always represented pretty much the same thing in Europe that Mao did in China, and that's patriarchal authority. So it's no big leap to intuitively understand that there's a common theme starting to emerge. And then you find out that he's also painted a lot of portraits of his own father. So there's no mistaking the fact that he's got some kind of beef with his dad, or at least a brooding preoccupation with the father-son relationship. 
But then he goes and adds another wrinkle to the mix because there's another patriarchal icon that he paints over and over, and that's Napoleon. And the fact that this artist moved to France when he was around 19 is an obvious connection, but the pose he always uses is something very particular. It comes from a drawing that David made as a study for his enormous painting of Napoleon's coronation as emperor. And what we know from history is that Napoleon actually put the crown on his own head. But for whatever reason, the painting doesn't really show that. If you look at it online, you can see that Napoleon is holding a crown out in front of himself. And it looks more like he's about to put it on Josephine's head because she's right there kneeling in front of him. But in the drawing, there's no doubt about what's going on. Napoleon is holding the crown in one hand and he's holding it right over his own head. So what's up with that? Why does he paint Napoleon over and over in that very particular pose? The obvious answer is that he wants to show this icon of patriarchal authority in a flagrant act of narcissism. But still, so what? This confirms our intuitive understanding that he's pretty angry about that kind of authority, and probably about his own father, but it still doesn't tell us anything all that interesting. It just says that the guy is giving us narcissism plus patriarchal authority as a consistent theme. And we're still left to figure out for ourselves that putting them together in one painting likely means that they belong together in others, even in the ones that don't make it so obvious. Then there's another type of icon that he paints, and that's media celebrities and pop icons. And most of them are male figures. We've got Michael Jackson, Bruce Lee, Pablo Picasso, and plenty of others. Geez, he even has a drawing of Bernie Madoff. No way! But is he equating all of celebrity with narcissism? I don't think so. Because from his interviews, you can hear that he really wants celebrity for himself, or at least some sort of recognition and respect, if not from his dad, then at least from the art world. But then he dips back into celebrity narcissists with his portraits of presidents. In particular, he's got a telling series where he's grouped together portraits of Trump, Putin, Assad, and Kim Jong-un. And that gives us a pretty coherent mixture of celebrity plus authority plus power, all equaling a kind of toxic patriarchal narcissism. And if that combo gives us deeper insight into his anger issues, what about this other theme he keeps exploring? Selfies. The guy has painted way more selfies than a lot of other artists. And selfies have to be an exploration of his own consciousness, as if he's trying to work out the difference between his own character and that of those patriarchs he keeps painting. There's something important here because we often dream of celebrities. And when we do, they're always a manifestation of some aspect of our own consciousness and our own unconscious but I'm not interested in psychoanalyzing this painter. I just know that he's trying to work something out for himself, and whatever that is is purely his own business. For whatever reason, he doesn't paint many women. He's painted Lady Gaga, and he's painted Marilyn Monroe, and I think he also did Madonna. They're all obvious pop icons, so that makes sense. And he's done a series of nudes lately, but really, what painter doesn't? The most intriguing woman he's painted is La Gioconda, the Mona Lisa. 
Fact is, he was the first Chinese artist to be invited to exhibit at the Louvre, where he installed a group of five paintings in the room right next to the Mona Lisa, and he called the installation the Funeral of Mona Lisa. One of those five paintings was a selfie, but he pictured himself as dead. And that's a pretty vehement, if not bizarre, form of that historical trope known as a memento mori, a pictorial reminder of death and the fact that we all die. This seems to be important to him, and probably as a talisman against personal vanity and narcissism, which is the lesson a memento mori was meant to impart. But overall, he's painted a lot of death, or maybe I should say death and destruction. For example, he has a painting of Gaddafi's corpse from some image in the news, and then he's got a painting of the Twin Towers burning on 9-11. But the one that really stands out to me is a painting of the car crash that Jackson Pollock died in. And the reason I find it so interesting is because Yan Peiming has essentially become a modern Warhol. You can see that he's actually painting the same kinds of things that Warhol did. Let me explain. Ming does paintings of pop cultural icons, people like Michael Jackson and Lady Gaga. And what did Warhol do? He painted Elvis and Marilyn. Warhol painted political icons like Che Guevara and Mao. And what does Ming have? He's got modern presidents. He's got Napoleon. And sure enough, he's got Mao. And Warhol painted his Maos and Che's and Marilyn's in various colors. Ming has started to do that, too. He has a whole series of those Napoleons crowning himself in all different shades of reds, blues, and greens. The same thing with his mouths and popes, although they're mostly in red. But the similarity doesn't end there. Warhol painted mundane commodities, like tuna fish cans and those famous Campbell's soup cans. Ming has only painted the money involved. He's got all the U.S. currency denominations from $1 bills to $100 bills. And not only are they mundane, but Warhol himself also did a U.S. currency series. But the big thing, the thing that finally made it obvious to me, is that Warhol had a death and disaster series. Aside from electric chairs, he had car crashes. In particular, he had a large silver car crash. And Ming's painting of Jackson Pollock's car crash is so very similar to that, but I mean so eerily similar, it's kind of creepy. But there's also a huge major difference between Ming and Warhol, and that's in their technique, because most of Warhol's images were done as silk screens. And Ming, he paints with these enormously large, almost sloppy brush strokes. In fact, he's been quoted as saying that he had gone to the Van Gogh Museum and was really impressed by his technique. So what he did was buy some posters so he could count the brush strokes in Van Gogh's paintings. And then he figured out how many brush strokes he would need to mimic that style in his own huge paintings. And that explains why his brush strokes are so extremely large, because they're something of a magnification of Van Gogh's painting technique. So the contrast with Warhol and his technique is very clear. Warhol's silk screens are really quite, I wouldn't say soft. There's just something about his subject matter that seems to make it impossible to call them soft especially when you're looking at images of electric chairs or car crashes. But it's really refined in the sense that there's no intrusion of brush strokes to disturb the lines and textures. Warhol used brushes for much of his earliest work, but there's no real painting involved in making silk screens. It's more a form of printmaking. And because it's based on photographic negatives, it's all very detailed. 
Ming slaps his paint on as thickly as though he's using a trowel. And although he also uses photographs as the model for his images, there's no way to recreate the finer photographic details with his enormous brushes. Speaking of technique, he apparently does something called a la prima, which is wet paint on wet paint. He doesn't use the traditional method of allowing one layer of paint to dry before adding another layer, and so on. It's all just wet paint start to finish. But what's interesting about it is that this wet-on-wet wet technique is associated with a guy named Bob Ross, who a lot of people might remember for his public television show, The Joy of Oil Painting. Hello, I'm Bob Ross, and I'd like to welcome you to the 29th Joy of Painting series. I never watched Bob Ross, but I did watch his predecessor and teacher, William Alexander, whose show was called The Magic of Oil Painting, where the guy would paint some super kitschy landscape in under an hour. But I used to tune into that show almost religiously, except I didn't do it for the art, which was never to my taste. And I didn't tune in because his demeanor was so pleasant, which it actually was. Yeah, you and I, with all our creative power, we will create a better tomorrow. I love you. I just love watching him work. It always just completely relaxed me. Ah. There was some kind of magic in that combination of him talking and the sounds of the paintbrush. However cheesy the art, that show produced an atmosphere I just really, really loved. Turns out that there's actually a name for this psychological, really physical phenomenon. It's called Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. Wikipedia describes it as a subjective experience of low-grade euphoria and it's most commonly triggered by specific auditory or visual stimuli. That painting show always pulled the trigger for me. But not just for me, because that wiki article actually mentions those two painting shows. So if you don't know what it is, it's actually a physical sensation, and it's so amazingly pleasant, it almost hypnotizes you. It puts you in the most relaxed state possible, whereas looking at Yan Peiming's work is anything but relaxing. There's a vehemence, almost a violence to the way he paints, and you can just feel that. There's nothing relaxing about it. Now, that's not to say that there's anything relaxing about Andy Warhol's work. Far from it. But there's something that Ming does in all his paintings, and it's the thing that actually makes his work art with a capital A. The thing that this portrait of Mao has been trying to tell me all along, which is that while this painting may not be the least bit relaxing, it hypnotizes. That's right, because whenever you see it, you go into an instant trance. Relax. You relax. Relax. Would you like to relax? Now that may sound far-fetched, but it's true. And it's hugely important, because it's something that happens to all of us. And not just with this one painting, but with every single image you and I come across. No way. So let me explain. This form of hypnosis, it isn't like that autonomous sensory meridian response thingy where it puts you into a mild form of euphoria, something that's so physically and mentally relaxing, it's like a spa treatment. This painting hypnotizes all right, but the effect is very different. And sure, the thing is big, it's imposing, you could even call it impressive, but it doesn't take your breath away. Instead, and this is key, 
it takes your reason and your objectivity away. No! No! And that's what I mean by hypnosis. It induces a kind of instant trance that takes hold of you and puts your objectivity to sleep. And in its place, it puts a feeling-toned, emotionally charged thought into your head. And it all happens before you have any opportunity to think for yourself. It happens in a flash. In that virtual instant between the moment you see the image and the moment you have a thought in response to it. It's a moment like that virtual but utterly real instant between breathing in and breathing out. And no matter what your response is, whether you're attracted to it or repulsed by it, or even if you feel completely indifferent towards it, you've been hypnotized into thinking what you think by that very image. It's not your reason and logic that puts that immediate thought into your head. It's the image that intervenes and hypnotically puts it there. And now, I don't mean that it performs some kind of bizarre mind trick. The idea that it brings to mind, the one that comes into your head, was already there, or at least somewhere in your conscious or even unconscious memory. The image just calls it up exactly the way Freud's method of free association does. You and I have no control over this. It's the painting that does, the image, because just seeing it is enough to set this phenomenon in motion. And I wouldn't call the phenomenon being mesmerized because that has connotations of being enthralled by something. But hypnosis, which is a state that makes us more susceptible to suggestion, is exactly what I mean. In other words, the painting suggests a thought to us that we can't help but imagine is our own personal thought and our own considered opinion. That's a lot to take in, and it sounds pretty harsh. Insulting, even. Especially since it works the way Pavlov's bell did. But that's the thing about art and truth. Sometimes it just ain't pretty. And just like good medicine, it can leave a really bad taste. But there's no way to sugarcoat it, since the artist himself refuses to. I was only able to understand this by seeing more of Jan Peming's paintings online and seeing that his subject matter is essentially the same as Warhol's. And that's something I have to emphasize here, that it's impossible to understand the enormity of what Yan Peiming's art is telling us without seeing that he's essentially a modern Chinese-French Andy Warhol. In other words, Andy Warhol's work informs Yan Peiming's work and is crucial in making it understandable and in revealing its importance. Paradoxically, it's Yan Peiming's work that informs Andy Warhol's art, and it's crucial in making it understandable and revealing the depth of it and showing us that Warhol's work is more important and relevant than ever. Because without seeing Yan Pei Ming's personal style of angst-ridden brushwork, as it's applied to Andy Warhol's subject matter, it's very possible to miss Warhol's depth of meaning, which is that images have this uncanny, inescapable power to hypnotize us in our objectivity. Both Warhol and Ming tell us that Images of celebrities and cultural icons are like a powerful intravenous drug. They act immediately to short-circuit our understanding, our awareness, even our consciousness, and they produce an immediate emotional reflex of thought and feeling that we rarely, if ever, take the time to reflect on. 
They tell us that when faced with an image of some well-known person or thing, critical reflection is something we couldn't possibly do, even if we tried, at least not in the moment. Warhol wasn't just poking fun at Mao by depicting him in all sorts of weird candy colors. At least that wasn't the depth of meaning he was offering any one of us that were willing to go deep with him. His images of Mao revealed the two layers of meaning that every image presents. The surface meaning, which is what we immediately think of the shapes and colors and subject matter, how we interpret his silly images of Mao on the fly, and that would have been very different for any Chinese citizen at the time than it was for just about any American. Warhol started painting these images in 1972, right after Nixon's famous trip to China, and right in the middle of China's cultural revolution. Back then, making fun of Mao from the safety of New York City would have been like teasing a lion or tiger at the zoo. Geographic safety no longer being what it used to be, think about the consequences of surface meaning to artists like Salman Rushdie and Charlie Hebdo. Surface meaning being the one that does all the hypnotizing. But then Warhol was also showing us a much deeper meaning, which is the very thing that made him an artist and his images art. And that deeper meaning is that right there in the hidden depth of all images, behind the obvious surface the image depicts, there is always power. A power that controls what we think by pulling some thought up and out of who knows where and replanting it between our ears. We see some image printed on a soup can or posted on social media or streamed across our computer screen, and what we don't see or give a thought to is the power in it. Warhol's genius was his ability to act like Toto in The Wizard of Oz and pull back the curtain on that power to show us just how easy-peasy it is to realize that it's hiding in plain sight in all images. And he does that through metaphor. Warhol's metaphor says that Mao is not a person. Mao is a power. So that an image of Mao is an image not of a human being, but of power. Power is the real subject matter that Ming has been trying to work out and process for himself, and his paintings present that personal effort to us for us to see what he's come up with. I think Warhol was much better at it, but I've come to really appreciate Ming's efforts and admire his wild, stormy brushstrokes. Without them, I couldn't have seen what Warhol was trying to do. Technically, you'd have to understand that Warhol's and Ming's images, their subject matter, work exactly like a very particular rhetorical trope, which just means a figure of speech. Obviously, in the case of images, there aren't any words involved, but the effect is exactly the same as if the painter were saying something in words or holding a speech. And the particular figure of speech is called a metonymy, huh? which just means the use of one concrete word to actually mean something more general and abstract. It's a standard thing in poetry, like substituting the word grave for death or using Capitol Hill for the federal government. Warhol substitutes Marilyn, Elvis, and Mao for power. And then he doubles down, using electric chairs and car crashes. And finally, he triple doubles down, and he uses the power to end all powers, a mushroom cloud. You can see that Ming is doing the same thing. In fact, he works through a combination of patriarchy, plus authority, plus celebrity, plus narcissism, 
to express his personal vision of raw, naked power. And I have to give him credit because he's begun to paint images of powerful jungle cats, which essentially takes narcissism out of the equation. But then I've just seen an interview of him presenting these jungle cat paintings alongside a huge portrait of Rupert Murdoch. So there's no doubt in my mind that he resents narcissistic power and authority. Jeez, if there was ever a portrait to keep out of your living room and not to have to look at every day. I mean, Rupert Murdoch. Here's where things get more serious. Because not only does this hypnotic power reside in all images, we rarely, if ever, take the time to unmask it for ourselves. And that's not only because this same hypnotic power blinds us to itself in the first place. Most of us wouldn't even know how or where to begin doing that kind of unmasking. It's a problem that was wonderfully illustrated in a film by John Carpenter called They Live. It was based on a brilliant original story by Ray Nelson called Eight O'Clock in the Morning. In Carpenter's film, the hero finds a box full of these special sunglasses that allow him to see the generic message and meaning invisibly written into all the images on billboards and in magazines, every one of them saying things like, Obey. Conform. Consume. Because we have zero power over the immediate train of thought that an image forces us into, and because it takes time and effort to understand the meaning and message behind the image, images can control and influence not just our choices and decisions, but the very words that come out of our own mouths. Here's a short snippet of an impromptu interview I did in front of this painting that bears that out. I had stopped an otherwise innocent bystander who graciously agreed to be recorded for this episode, and I asked him a couple of questions about this painting. And what he said kind of surprised me, because at first I wasn't sure what to make of it. And that was because I had already gone through that initial hypnotic state and was already trying to come to grips with whatever deeper metaphoric meaning there was in that painting. But at that point I still hadn't found it. After thinking all these months about the painting and about what this guy said, I finally realized that he had given me the one crucial clue. It's something that eventually led me to understand this power that Ming and Warhol both expose. So here's that interview snippet. So what do you think? Would you you buy this for your living room? No. Can you tell me why? Because I don't like Mao very much. (laughs) That's that's perfectly fair. I don't think we should uh, glamorize uh, mass murderers, but it's a bit like the painting of the, I forget the name of the artist, but with all the hands, she, she killed her own children and they made a painting of all, all children's hands. Yikes. So I, I, it's good to have a museum because we can talk about it, but I don't know if I'd want to have it in my living room. <laughs> I tend to agree with you. Yeah. Not liking Mao is a perfectly valid personal response, and it's factually correct that Mao was a mass murderer, but it's that one simple word that got me thinking. Glamorize? Was that the painter's intention? Is that what hanging this portrait of Mao on a wall does? Glamorizes him? I could see after careful looking that glamorization was not what the painter intended. But my interview guest's immediate reaction was to think that this is what the painting actually did. And this was the clue that I needed to understand the power that images hold to make us think and say something that corresponds to our first impression just like Freud's free association method. The amazing thing, though, is that before this, I had never noticed that, that this is what all images do to us. It's just so easy to miss that subtle, almost invisible fact. All images 
always, always, always trigger an immediate response, whether that response is verbal or emotional or even physical. And that means that they have enormous power. I'm just calling that power their ability to perform an instant hypnosis on all of us because we can't help thinking what we think in response to them. You realize some people aren't going to be happy with this? Maybe the fact that I'm calling it the power to hypnotize might rub some people the wrong way. But the hypnotic response we have, which is totally personal and subjective, doesn't mean it's invalid. On the contrary, for us as individuals, it's perfectly valid. I mean, what this guy I interviewed said to me was perfectly valid for him and for probably a whole lot of people across the globe. But then the initial response of the millions of people who were enthusiastic supporters of Mao would have been equally valid for them. It just would have been the polar opposite. We have to realize that validity isn't a matter of truth with a capital T. It's a matter of context, which in the case of global populations actually means culture. Whatever our ideology our initial, perfectly valid hypnotic response is the one we've been preconditioned to come up with by our culture. And it can only be tempered by our personal experience or by how deeply and critically we've been able to think about that response. So validity, context, and culture aside, no matter what you think of Mao or Elvis or Campbell's soup cans, when you see any image of them, you do immediately think something. But that something may have nothing to do with the objective, factual reality behind the image. Instead, it's got everything to do with the story we always tell ourselves about it. Whether that story comes out of our own experience or just out of what our culture has repeatedly told us, we should think about it. And therein lies the thing we all need to be aware of which is that this hypnotic power can be used to manipulate us. And that's what propaganda is and what it does. Propaganda takes an image and tries to get us all to immediately think the same exact thing the instant we see it. Now that may seem an awful lot like herding cats, except we all know that it works. Instead of letting us go our own way and have our own individual discriminate and critical thoughts in the face of a particular image, the propagandist knows how to play with that hypnotic power and show us an image in such a way that it herds us together, sends us all down the same cattle chute, and has us arrive at the same meatpacking plant. Now, propaganda is a Latin word. It includes the idea of persuasion. And it means that if we're talking about art, we're talking about persuasion. We're trying to make someone change their mind. But that's not what art should be doing. Art should never be about changing your mind. Art is for opening your mind to possibilities you may have never otherwise imagined, even if those possibilities are just so personal that only you can appreciate them. And that's why it's so important to take the time to look at art and give yourself an opportunity to take both a subjective and an objective stance. Obviously, you can't help having an immediate opinion or making a snap judgment, because that's what all images do to us. But art encourages you to come out of that trance and spend some time to try and see if the image might be saying something other than what you originally thought. Hmm. Critical reflection like this takes time and effort, and it's nearly impossible to do with everyday images, whose very reason for existing is to manipulate us. But going to a museum, that gives you a context, an excuse, 
a license even to stand in one place and actually take your time to think about one single image. Looking closely and thinking deeply in a museum lets you come out of that trance and wake up to what you can actually think and feel and see for yourself. Now, you don't have to do this with every image in a museum. That isn't practical. It's not even possible. Just choose one, anyone, because it's not the particular image you choose to reflect on that's so important, but the act of reflection itself that's so very, very important, crucial even. It's the very equivalent of putting on those special sunglasses from the John Carpenter film. This kind of deep reflection, what I call metaphor hunting, is how art takes that hypnotic power, the power that propaganda depends on, and it hands it back over to you. So let me just say this one last thing about art and images and seeing things for yourself. This image of Mao obviously came from a photograph, and one that's just as obviously connected to China's cultural revolution, which was a pretty horrific time for dissident artists and writers, because they were the only ones encouraging people to think for themselves. And because thinking for yourself was something the official culture did everything it could to repress. Now, this lasted from 1966 until 1976, but the seeds of it were already sown by some of the things Mao said at a conference that took place in May of 1942. It was called the Yan'an Forum on Literature and Art. And the basic thrust of Mao's talks there was that art should serve politics. In other words, all art should be political propaganda, which, as I said, is something I find problematic. But not just because Mao said it. Ironically, it's something that the art world of today seems to agree with. These days, the trend is to think that art is supposed to support and serve some worthy cause. Except whose idea of worthiness are we talking about? Especially when it comes to politics, where both sides of every important issue consider their side to be right, and the other side to be not just wrong, but dead wrong. Of course, art and activism can work together, but that isn't just a matter of images serving activism it still boils down to propaganda. Art shouldn't have to serve anybody's agenda, political or otherwise, to be considered worthwhile. And when it does, even if you or I consider that agenda to be totally legit and worthwhile, it's still just propaganda, if not something worse. And if you want to know what I mean by worse, check out James Joyce and his definition of pornographic art in his Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. I want to quote two things among the very many that Mao said at this 1942 conference. The first is that literature and art are subordinate to politics, but in their turn exert a great influence on politics. And that's his intuitive understanding of the hypnotic power of image. But then guess what? In 1982, the Chinese Communist Party officially declared that Mao's doctrine saying that literature and art are subordinate to politics was an incorrect formulation. So maybe you don't take that as an endorsement of art for art's sake, but I sure love the irony of it. A second quote is this, the more reactionary their content and the higher their artistic quality, the more poisonous they are to the people and the more necessary it is to reject them which is not only kindling to the awful conflagration of that cultural revolution, 
but it's just another way of saying, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Roger that. Finally, one last thing. I really get off on hunting down metaphors and then researching all the ideas that brings up, especially because I usually find a treasure trove of irony and comedy hiding in those details. And one of those details had to do with that word, propaganda. And while Wikipedia isn't the right place for definitive research, it's really terrific for getting yourself started out on a hot trail. So listen to this little snippet about an otherwise staid and decidedly uncomical liturgical office in Rome. It's called the Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples. It actually has a Latin name, Congregatio Progentium Evangelatione, and it's responsible for missionary work. So the wiki article says, it's perhaps better known by its former title, the Sacred Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith, which in Latin is Sacra Congregatio de Propaganda Fide and their main job was fostering the spread of Catholicism. In other words, the original business of propaganda was persuading people to change their minds about which religion they were going to follow. So this Congregatio was founded in 1622 by Pope Gregory XV, but had only been renamed by Pope John Paul II in 1982. And I can only wonder why they decided to change the name of this office after more than three and a half centuries especially if they just renamed it in Latin. But my guess is they understood how the same hypnotic power that resides in images, it also resides in the names we choose to call things. Even if a rose is a rose is a rose, I guarantee that if you heard the word for rose in Chinese or Turkish, you wouldn't necessarily picture anything like a flower in your mind. But you would picture something. So the real reason they decided to rebrand the propaganda office may have been because, in Italian, propaganda is a word they use for all commercial advertising. They must have figured that, after all these centuries, people were starting to think of their missionary work as just another stupid commercial. Ciao a tutti! Hey, be sure to check out my website, Christo.art, K-R-I-S-T-O dot A-R-T, where you'll find show notes for each episode, as well as plenty of other ideas related to looking at and thinking about art.